Did you guys hear a good sermon this morning? Yeah. <laughs> the volume from this side is enormous. I, I got to talk with, well, I mean, you know, I'm not, which, I'm not sure which sermon he gave. Uh, he was working on like eight different ones at different times. And, uh, but one of them I really liked, and I hope that's the one I get to hear when I watch it on, on video later on. Uh, but uh, if, if it's anything like he said, you guys, uh, you guys were treated well this morning and heard some really good stuff and compelling, and I hope uh, you were blessed by it. I got to be with 875 people this morning. A guy walks up to me and says, we haven't had this, size, this congregation, uh, this, this size of an assembly here in a long time. He said, is it the largest number you've ever spoken to at one time? And I said, well, it might be. I don't know. I'm not really sure, but I could tell you the singing was just absolutely amazing. And it's a great weekend with those kids, but I began to feel old as the weekend dragged on. And the other speaker was Jeremy Pierce at 7th and Muller. We kind of tag-teamed it, and it worked very well, but he's 36. He looks young, and, and I just started feeling older. And then something weird happened. Uh, went to Zaxby's at Searcy on the way back to join Noah and some other groups that had stopped there on the way back. And as I was coming out, I looked at the parking lot, and there was a Chevy Celebrity. Anybody know what, remember what those look like? How many of you remember those? I had one. I drove one for years. Uh, in fact, uh, traded in on the first car that Melissa and I ever bought together. And it, was, it was, had that curve back to it. And I was admiring it. Same color. Brought back a lot of memories. And then I looked. It had antique plates on it. <laughs> and that was so disturbing because that means the car that I drove in high school is an antique is that, is that something is so wrong about that? I, it, just, it was disturbing. It's bothered me all day. Uh, another interesting thing, uh, I was in the hotel uh, overnight the first night, I think, the first morning I was there. Let's see, I'm trying to see if she's here or not. One of our youth group people was at some kind of sports event there, didn't see me watching her. And so I was behind a pillar, and I was watching. I'm thinking, you know, is she going to act just as normal and just like she always does when, when nobody's looking and nobody from her church is looking? So I kept watching. I'm going to send her a card this week. And just listen, I want you to know I was watching you. And I'm not going to sign it either. I'm just going to... And, and she acted normal. She was as sweet as she always is. And I was just like, man, that's great. I love feeling about that, um, knowing that. A Exodus chapter 4. If you look down at verse 24, I want to show you this, that we're not going to be here for another, it looks like... Uh, couple weeks as we go, but listen to this weird story. At a lodging place on the way, this is Exodus 4.24, the Lord met him, Moses, and sought to put him to death. Then Zipporah, his wife, took a flint, cut off her son's foreskin, and touched Moses' feet with it, and said, surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. Isn't that the weirdest thing you've ever seen, right? I've been working on this for a couple weeks. I have no clue what this means. And they had a question and answer session at this youth rally. And so I submitted, what is the bridegroom of blood? I figure all the young people are just on the edge of their seats to know what this story means. Don't you think? They didn't even ask the question. They just left it for later on. And, and, and then there was no later on. They were avoiding me. I want you to look at that passage. I want you to grapple with that passage for a while and try to figure out what does bridegroom of blood mean, just for fun, if you're one of these academic people. But we are uh, tonight in Exodus chapter 4. Uh, God's wanting to do something really great. He's wanting to do something really uh, life-changing and history-changing, for that matter, the Exodus. He's arranging all the ingredients necessary to orchestrate this incredible deliverance from slavery, and he wants 
Moses to be the one to do it. But when he calls on Moses to do it, he finds a very reluctant servant. I was raised in a small church. I think small churches have a better advantage, I think, for developing leaders. My parents would always tell me this. If you're asked to do something, unless there's a very, very, very compelling reason to say no, always say yes. Were you taught this? You men, were you taught this? If you're asked to do something, always say yes. I think that's a good thing. This is why lads to leaders, I think, is so important. We're equipping our young people to be able to say yes when they're asked. Don't wait until they're adults to train them to do this because when we become adults, we're a little bit more hesitant to do things. We're a little bit more scared, a little bit more reluctant. Let's train our young people from we little lads to say yes and go out there and venture out and do these things. So Moses starts objecting right away. We know the first objection, right? The first one is, who am I? Who am I to be able to do this? And God took care of that one. He said, I'm going to be with you, God's presence. So when you're always like, who am I to be doing these things God asked me to? Well, it's not just you. He's he's with you. The second objection we know is, Uh, as he looks at God and says, who are you? I don't know enough. And God answers this one with revelation. Revelation is the answer to overcoming any ignorance to do what God wants you to do. And here comes the third one. When he contemplates this enormous task, his mind goes back in time to chapter 2 and verse 14. When he thought that he would be the deliverer, he thought he would be the perfect one in a position to deliver Israel from their captivity, and he rose up and he struck that Egyptian with the full intent of starting the redemption from Egypt. But one of his own people, one of the people he's trying to rescue, looks at him and says, who are you? Who made you to be a ruler and a king over us, a judge over us? And automatically, because he was rejected by his own people, Moses thought he was forever disqualified from doing this. It struck him to the heart. He had every desire to do it. He was willing to do it. But when the people did not respond in any favorable way, he shut down that desire, and for the next 40 years, he puts it out of his mind. And even when God comes knocking and asks him to try it again, all he can think of is the feeling he had when he was rejected. There's nothing quite like rejection or perceived rejection or anticipated rejection to make us stay uninvolved. Every guy, every guy raised with the understanding that you're the one to ask out the girl, and it used to be back in the old days, this is again, my car was antique, remember? In the old days, you remember this? You have to call the house phone to get to the girl. She didn't have it. It didn't go straight into a room to where you had an instant access to her. No, you didn't do that. You had to call mom and dad to get to the daughter. And that was, that was so gut-wrenching. Many, many a good intentions died just from the thought of having to do that. Many people, I remember the first time I was going to, it was in Chillicothe, Missouri, and I was doing this little internship in high school uh, with, with the youth minister up there, and he says, there's this girl, why don't you ask her? You call her up, and I would just delay and delay, and finally he'd say, okay, at, at, at 7 o'clock tonight, if you haven't answered, if you haven't called her by then, I'm not going to let you call. You've got to do it by 7. And so I did, and I called her up, and I said, hey, you want to go riding bikes sometime? She says, 
No, I forgot I started an art class a couple years ago. I need to start it again. Never called anybody for years and years after that. That, that one rejection. And, and you'll never, you will never ask the girl to marry you unless you know for sure what the answer is, will you? I mean, if there's an, even an inkling of a clue, she might say no. It's not going to be asked yet. We are all delicate this way. Every man is. And the church needs to be careful with this because it's not just in that asking somebody out thing. It's any time you try to do something where people need to follow and, it's, and you're subject to their criticism and you're subject to their judgment when you do it and you're always afraid what kind of judgment they give. The One of the scariest things you can do is try to speak at Harding Chapel. You know what all the students are doing during chapel? They're tweeting. They're tweeting live every stutter of the speaker. Everything they don't like, everything they find weird, they're instantaneously just sending it out to friends. I've been told that the speakers, they have a hard time getting speakers sometimes because everybody knows they're being judged in real time at that very moment by people who are sending out stuff about the words he says and how he says them. It's a scary proposition. And we've got to be careful about this, and we've got to be very conscious about this as a church because any time a young person gets up here, it's a risk for this young person. And they're in a very vulnerable spot. And when they lead a song and they, they go to the wrong verse or they let it slip somehow, how you react matters. And the words you say matters. And it doesn't have to be a young man. It can be any person. One of the scariest things is you make yourself vulnerable and risky when you get up here and say something and these people are out there. And it's almost like we're an American Idol culture. You're the judges. And afterwards, let's go up and tell them how he did. Oh, it's terrifying for young people. I like what we do. I like what you do. Lads to leaders on a Wednesday night, they come up, and they're not going to hear criticism. And if they do, you're going to be disfellowshipped. Rightly so. Because we live in this performance culture, and people almost expect professionalism all the time with the public worship of the church. And if a person comes and it doesn't come across professional and smooth and a polished result, then that isn't leadership material. This creates this vacuum in the preaching task, it seems to me, for coming years. We're so vocal and critical. The prayers have to be perfect, and the song leading has to be perfect. And I'm as guilty as anybody else. The, the preaching has to be perfect, and you've got to do your best, but best Best effort doesn't mean best performance all the time. And I'd say we don't have the best of anything at Valley View. There are better preachers. There are better song leaders. There are better worders of prayer, right? I can't say I've been where Moses has been, where he says that, you know, I failed this once and they told me about it and I'm never going to do it again. I certainly reach points several times in a year where I wonder, do I know what in the world I'm doing at all? I wonder that more than you think. And I hear people wonder that about me every once in a while as well. But I know this full well, that when God asked human beings to carry out his will and to do his work, he knew he was getting imperfect work at best, and yet that's exactly who he left it in the hands of, us. And he needs the rest of us to get over ourselves in worship. 
even when leaders of that worship are less than flawless. If you're waiting on the most polished, perfect presentation for you to worship, you're going to be waiting a long time, and as you wait, you'll die. Imperfect people doing the work of God is a way for them to mature, and you letting imperfect people lead you in worship is a way for you to grow up and mature. Doesn't have to be flawless any more than your performance during your life, during your week, has to be perfect. But think about the situation of Moses. They're not going to believe me, and God doesn't argue with Moses because what God knows is they're not going to believe me either. He's going to lead them for the next 40 years, and he's going to struggle getting his people who watched the whole dry ground deal, who watched the water out of the rock deal, who watched the raining down of bread from heaven, and watched the quail. They see all that, and they still don't trust God. And do you think they're going to trust Moses? Well, no. God knows this. But to try as best he can to get them to respect Moses, he comes up with a plan. His response includes sign language. It's the first time we hear about signs in Scripture. And I want you to notice a couple of verses real quick. You see in verse 5 where he gives the reason for these signs. You need to know what the reasons are. God's not just doing miracle things just to make you go ooh and ah any more than Jesus ever did. But verse 5 it says, that they may believe the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, has appeared to you. The reason for these signs is that they can believe God appeared, God's in this, and believe that God is working in Moses. These signs are to make, confirm in their minds God's working in this. And then there's a message with it. And verse 8 is the second reason. Second time he says something. If they will not believe you, the signs that are to make them believe him. If they do not believe you, God said, or listen to the first sign, they may believe the latter sign. Notice it's something to be seen, but it's also something to say something. Miracles are never done in Scripture without an accompanying message. And if you don't have a message to say, there's no reason for a miracle to show up. Now this is the reason... I don't have a verse for this. This is the reason why there aren't miracles like this today. God's message is complete. He's not adding any more to Scripture. The message is complete in Jesus. We've heard his final word, and since there's no need for any more message, there's no need for any more miracle like this. I'm not saying, I'm going to have people come up and say this, but I'm not saying God doesn't do amazing things. I am saying he's not going to do that through a preacher like he did through Jesus. So if, we have an issue here somewhat. The idea is sort of like a billboard on a highway. As you go by these highways, these are visual messages. The idea is to look at that billboard, it gets your attention, and then it gives you a message. And whether you heed that message or not, it's up to you. So there's two things. You've got to see this wonder this sign, and then you've got to go to where that sign is pointing. That sign is telling you something that's back behind the sign. As you're driving along and it says the golden arches are three miles ahead, the sign shows McDonald's. That's kind of showing you the McDonald's sign, but it's also a sign that says it's up here in three miles and you need to get off here and get you a Big Mac. Okay, that's the message. Do you heed the message or not? Well, it depends. Are you hungry? What time is it? And all that stuff. 
So when Jesus came along, he did amazing wonders. He did amazing signs. But if the people were all just amazed at Jesus and didn't listen to him, it was a total failure and flop because the whole wonder was to make you listen and tell you that this was a message unlike any other. And the way you know it is because this sign points to something different. So Scripture is still full of signs. But we don't receive them in real life like they did. But the signs, like on John, the Gospel of John is built around seven signs of Jesus that tell you Jesus is the Son of God and you're supposed to believe them. One of them is like raising Lazarus from the dead and turning water into wine and all that stuff. These are signs. These aren't just neat miracles to get your attention. They're signs to say the person doing this is something more than human. The message is something significant. Now, if we, don't, we can't do this today, if we could go out on the street right now and I could work a miracle, I think we would probably have a bigger crowd tonight than we do. I'm pretty sure that if I could do some of the things Moses does, this would be interesting. So the first one is this. He, he takes this rod and he throws it down on the ground and it becomes a snake. And only Moses is seeing this. Later on, Aaron performs this for the people of Israel. And later on, they perform this for Pharaoh himself. But right now, it's just Moses and God giving him signs about how he's going to get the favor of the people. And he throws down the, the, the staff and it becomes a serpent. And I'm sure it's one of those cobras. And Moses, Moses splits tail. I don't want to be seeing this. It's a, cre- it's a weird language in Hebrew that says he got out of there. That thing stood up and looked at him and he said it's enough. Now if you look at the Egyptian head- headwear here, the Egyptians worshipped serpents. They said the serpents were the sign of Egypt. It's great power and religious acumen, right? And so you see like the pharaohs would wear this headdress thing and it would have a, a serpent right here. And what God is showing is I'm in- I can tame serpents. I'm going to go in and I'm going to tame the Egyptians. They think they're almighty and powerful, but I'm going to be the one. And then he says to to Moses, what I want you to do is I want you to grab it by the tail, and the language changes. Instead of grabbing it, he snatched it. He just kind of swiggled, because he didn't want any more near it than you and I would. And he grabs that thing, and it becomes a staff again. Then he says, okay, if that doesn't work, here's another sign. What I want you to do is put your hand in your lapel, right? Comes out leprous, white, about to fall off or whatever. Oh, no. And and, and so God is over even health issues, and he puts his hand back in, and and the leprosy goes. And he doesn't perform the third one, but he says, if you need to, we'll turn water into blood. You take these signs to the Israelites, and I promise you, they will listen. This is Moses' treatment by God to answer his question is how am I going to get these people to listen but here's the thing for us this is the hard part of application from this text if you if you worry if you worry about the fact if I do any kind of leadership in my life and talk to people about anything spiritual how do I how can I convince people to listen to me if we can't do signs like this how do we convince people to listen to our message. Isn't that our biggest issue? In the church, we have a message. We're convinced. We're convinced the message we have is the message humanity needs. They are lost and they need a Savior, and there is one. They've got one who's died for them and then everything necessary. We've got the message that saves mankind, true or false. How do we get people's attention to be able to share it? 
That's our number one issue. We have the same qualm that Moses does. And I want to say to God, God, we're willing to say the message, but who are we going to say it to? Nobody cares. Luke chapter 9. He's sending out the apostles on this, on this trial run of mission. And here's the instructions he gives them. When Jesus had called the twelve together, he gave them power and authority to drive out all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom and heal the sick. There's your two-prong thing. He says, I'm going to give you the ability. I'm going to give you the message. Proclaim the kingdom just like I do. I want you to say something. But I'm also going to give you the ability and the authority to heal the sick and cast out demons. That's going to get you a crowd. So I, I want to give you something to say, and I want you to get you signs that cause people to listen to you. And they go out, and apparently it works. They go into these towns and villages, and they heal a bunch of people, and now everybody comes to listen, and then they've got something to say. How are we going to do that? How do we accomplish this when the whole signs thing is taken out? What is it that we're supposed to do that gets the attention of our community, the people you live around, to where they'd even want to listen? Oh, we got something to say. We got the same message they do. Question is, how do we get their attention? And when you read through the rest of the New Testament, I think we kind of, we got to figure out this language, this thing, because uh, this is an important issue, and we all have to matter with it. Next verse, next, next screen. Uh, and so here's a verse. Here's one of a couple of passages I want to share with you. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves, this is Titus 3, to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others, hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of our Savior appeared, that's the gospel. When we knew about Jesus, learned about Jesus, he changed us. He changed us completely, and our before picture is different than our after picture. It's a great commercial. When the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us not because of works done by us or righteousness, but according to his own mercy by the washing and regeneration uh, and renewal of the Holy Spirit. So God uh, took our old life, washed us clean. Next slide. There you go. Whom he poured out on us richly through Christ Jesus our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs. And so now we are children of God. Great. You are a testimony in your very own life. I want to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These are the things that are excellent and profitable for people. So here's the thing he says. You become, you become your own sign. Your changed life, the way you live in front of people becomes an impressive thing for them to witness and they say I can see by the way you live your life something you have is good and profitable and valuable for me you think your life of good works is as powerful as healing a crippled person it sure doesn't seem like it to me but this is what God left us with in the New Testament Next screen. This is 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 20. If anyone's in Christ, is a new creation. 
The old is past, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. As soon as you receive reconciliation, you become an agent to pass that on to other people by your new life, your new creation. And you're going out and sharing with the world. Be reconciled about God. You can now, you can now come to peace with your creator. Your life is to be lived in such a way it becomes the sign that draws people to the truth. Now here's the thing. I know it's not as dramatic and impressive as healing somebody with a broken arm. But church, this is what we've got. Our job is to be the sign. We are the sign. Our lives are the demonstration of the reality and truth of the message we believe. And that's why, that's why, church, when we go out there and we live lazy lives and we live lives where we don't feel any bit of responsibility to live a certain way for God, everybody looks at us and says, why would I want to belong to the church you're at? Ooh. That's true. Now, I don't want to put it all on you, but God seems to want to. If you are going to draw people to the truth, it's got to be the slow process of you day in and day out living that truth in front of them. And that's their sign that the message you believe is true and genuine and powerful. It takes time. It's not instantaneous. It's not near as momentous as a miracle. Charles Colson was a guy... He uh, went into prison fellowship, did all sorts of weird, good stuff in prisons, and just revolutionized ministry in prison. And the reason why is because he spent so much time in prison. He was an evangelical Christian, wrote a lot of stuff later on, but early in his life, he was terrible. He was on Richard Nixon's campaign, and he was on his cabinet, and he was one of the worst ones in the whole Watergate thing, and he was put in prison for a good long time. While in prison, he does a conversion. He becomes a born-again Christian, as he calls it. And uh, he starts living a good life, and people start talking about letting him out early. Well, this reporter decides, I want to check this out. And so he goes into prison, he starts talking to him. And Charles Colson has all these neat things to say about what Jesus did, what God did, what the truth does, and what he plans to do when he gets out, and how faithful he's going to be. And the, and, the, and the reporter says, with all due respect... You were in prison. You're going to be in prison for a really long time. How can I believe this conversion is genuine at all? How do I know you're not just playing this game to win some points to get out of here? It's a good question. It's a good question everybody could ask you. How do I know you really believe this stuff? How do I know when I come to church with you and you sing this stuff? How do I know you really believe this? And this isn't just something to win you some brownie points in the community or, in your, or because, you, you know, your family keeps peace in the family. That's the reason you're in. How do I know this stuff is real? Well, Chuck Colson thought about that for a minute. He says, well, here's, you'll just have to come back and talk to me in 10 years. That's the only answer I know, too. We can play a game. We can fake it. It can be a selfish pursuit. The only way I'll ever know this is real is day in, day out, day after day, year after year, I'm watching. How genuine and real is your life matching the truth you believe? And over time, he says, apparently, once you set apart Christ as Lord in your heart and it's real, 
somebody's going to ask you for the reason for the hope that you have. And then and only then will your words matter. And will the truth that you present make any kind of impression at all? This doesn't demand perfection, but it's interesting. When you look at elders and deacons' qualities, uh, it says don't make, them cr- don't make anybody an elder or deacon too fast. They don't need to be novices. Watch them a while. Watch them and see their lifestyle because it's only their lifestyle that's going to compel anybody. And so if you get this new person who hasn't proven himself, it could be catastrophic for the church. And I expect the bar to be a little higher for elders and deacons. That's what it looks like to me. I expect a little more from them because they are the people that everybody looks at and says, here's the epitome of what we believe. This is what we're trying to produce here. Now, it doesn't mean that you have to be, reach that, that, that pinnacle of, uh, of, of getting your life together in order to ever come in the door. If you're going to be an elder and deacon, we should expect more. If you're going to be a preacher, I expect more. And you're going to be, I'm going to bring this more home, and that is, if you're going to teach a Bible class, I expect more. Nobody wants me to make that point, and here's why, because we can't get enough people to teach classes as it is. And you're telling me I have to really believe and live what I'm saying? If we have to combine classes, we'll combine them. I expect the teachers who teach our young people to also model for them. And I have no apology about that. None at all. We're not just trying to get by on a Sunday night and a Wednesday morning. Or Wednesday night and Sunday morning. I'm not just trying to get our classes over with so we can say we have one. This is about really believing what we say. Really living what we believe. People ask me every once in a while, have you been called to preach? And the answer is yes, but not how you think. Little church back home, mutual edification. So if we had a preacher, it had to be within. If we didn't have somebody who could come from without, which was very rare, somebody's got to get up there, and they might as well start training somebody to do it. Mom and Dad expected our lives to match that as best we could. The elders saw something, urged me to develop those skills and, and went to church camps and future preacher training camps and majored in Bible and did all that stuff. And, and, and I've always wanted to try to live out that message. It was imperfect at best, but I really want to. And if there's ever a point where I sit back and go, no, I don't want to live it anymore, I can fake it, then I need to get out of this. But as of now, I'd say, yes, the call is there. And I, yes, I see a, a call on our young people to aspire to ministry here. It's a demanding thing because unlike acting or, 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 or any other job, the thing is it's you don't stop doing that job whenever you're, you're ti- you click your time, right? A performer on a stage plays a great role, and it's great, but as soon as he's done with it, he goes back to his normal life and everything changes. You don't expect the same role on the stage to be at home, but that's the way it's supposed to be. That's the way it's supposed to be with us. It is. And you teachers, too. Those who lead prayers. God says to us before he ever talks about male spiritual leadership and women in a different role altogether, he says, I want men to lift up their hands in prayer and holy hands in prayer. I want, I want to know that when you go up and you lead that prayer up in front of people, it's backed by a life that's equally trying to be holy. I expect that of our young people. I expect our young ladies to teach and learn how to teach. And as you 
live a life where you try to live what you believe, people will see it, they'll come to respect it, and they'll even come to want something of what you have. And this is how, and this is the only way, the church draws people to listen to us. There's no shortcut. There's no miracles. We don't have an easy way of doing this. There's no magical formula to bypass genuine, authentic, Christian living and performing signs before the people we live around. We don't just need a logo of the church on the hill. We need everybody to be the logo, to live it so that others can watch it that just seems so undramatic, doesn't it? If we just could do miracles and get a lot of people hearing it. But here's the thing. Your message is only as good as the life you live. The burden on us is enormous. I love the message we have. It's perfect. It's saving. It's straight from God. But we can only have an audience to give it to if we're also trying to live it and people respect that so that when you invite or when you share it with them they will listen because they see it so embodied in you so if your excuse is I don't lead because nobody will listen to me I'm gonna say to you get them to listen to you by living what you want to lead this is not a job we pay people to do and put them on staff. That'd be handy. It just ain't true. It's a job you have to embrace. And if people don't come, and if people don't respond to you, then it's probably because either they've made up their mind, and a lot of people have, or it's because you're not compelling them with the life you live. That's a scary thing to me, and it's a scary thing to us. As the church on the hill, let's be a church that decides, yes, we've got the message, we want to preach the kingdom of God, but we also want to live it. We want to live it in such a way that we invite people to come and hear. They'll want to see what we have to say. Give them signs, your good works, the good things you do, but it's got to be consistent with your life. If for whatever reason things are amiss in your life and you need to make something right, tonight's a good time to do it. Make your life right, get things out of the way, and strive to live a holy life. It doesn't demand perfection, but when imperfection comes, repentance takes its place. You are stored back to where you should be, and people respect that as well. So, once people want a sign, give it to them. Sign with your life. If you need to respond, make it known as we stand and sing together.